This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, guest host Tom Hodson will be talking with Yvette McGee-Brown, She was born in Columbus, Ohio, to a single teenage mother whose goal was just trying to get Yvette through high school without getting pregnant. Young Yvette did make it through high school, and she became the first in her family to go to college. And then she went to law school, and after years of public service, she became the first African-American woman justice on the Ohio Supreme Court. Now a prominent attorney, Justice Brown will share stories about how she charted the course of her career, finding ways to tackle tough public issues along the way. You and I have a couple of similarities. I read in the material you were a a Mm first-generation college graduate, and, and many of us, uh, many of us were, but but talk about what education meant in your family. I know in a lot of things that you've written, you talk about how important it was. It was. My, um, my, my grandmother especially, given how she grew up in the Jim Crow South, education she saw and knew very early was the game changer. She used to say to me, you go to school and you learn everything those teachers have to teach you because once you've learned it, they can never take it back. So she saw that as our opportunity to write a different story. And this is from a woman who had such wisdom but never had um, formal education beyond, you know, uh, middle high school. But what has been fortunate for me is that I liked school. I was the nerdy kid in school, always reading. And I got teachers that saw a spark in me before I could identify it myself. And I sometimes wonder if there are those same opportunities now for those kids like me who you don't even know what you don't know. I mean, I knew I wanted more than what I had but I didn't know what that looked like or how to get there. But there were always these teachers, even when I came to OU, professors who pushed me and encouraged me because they saw something that I didn't even recognize or know was there. Isn't it amazing to have those mentors? And it, I don't even know if mentor is the right word. Mm-hmm. It was just people that, they that, cared. that yeah. jabbed you or knew how to, to, to motivate you mm-hmm. a little bit. I had one. I have to share that uh, a mentor here at Ohio University, and uh, he was always pushing me. Mm -hmm. And when I got elected first time to municipal court, and Mm -hmm. I thought I was great shakes, you know, getting elected (laughs) at 31 years old, being Uh the youngest judge in Ohio, I thought that was a big deal. So Uh he waited about six weeks, and then he (laughs) called me and said, Okay, what are you going to do next? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so some of them are lifelong mentors, aren't they? They are. <laughs> what are you going to do next? How did you, how did you come to Ohio University and and in the School of Journalism? Um, I had worked on my school newspaper in high school, 
and um, the guidance counselor in our high school brought a group of us down here. I, I didn't really know much about college. Nobody in my family had been to college, so <laughs> Same with me. I didn't even know what to apply. And I honestly think they had to take us. Like <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. I'm not sure I could get in <laughs> right. with today's standards. I know. I don't remember like stressing about college admission. I think. They had, if you were an Ohio high school graduate, I think they just took you. But in any event, our guidance counselor brought some of us down here. I went to a fraternity party, and only thing I can remember was, oh my God, if this is college, I'm in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is a whole lot different than home. And that's how I chose Ohio University. And then as I I talked to my mom, my guidance counselor was very good at sending home financial aid information, work study. I mean, I had a work study job the minute I hit OU's campus. And I remember when I was in high school, my mom made me take typing because she said, if you know how to type, you'll always have a job. I mean, her biggest dream for me was to graduate high school not pregnant. Everything that's come after has been completely just icing on the cake. So... OU turned out to be the best choice for me because I grew up here. I mean, I had, I mean, you remember Carol Harder? Oh, I mean, yes. she was my first female role model outside of my mom and my grandmother. I mean, I used to watch her. Men would quake yeah. <laughs> in her presence. She was awesome. And, and she was, um, and I mean this in a good way. She was volatile. Yeah, you you couldn't read her or yes. predict her. That's because right. Because one time she was just nice as pie, and the next time, boy, you better take some armor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Along, because she was going to go after you. And you imagine being a young woman. I looked at her in awe. I had never seen a woman in a position of power like that being able to tell men what to do. So you were in journalism and public relations, and we all took everything mm-hmm. when we were in journalism back then. At what point did the the law bug click in? You know, it's funny. The law bug was planted by um, Sandra Haggerty, who was my advisor in the journalism school. So Sandra Haggerty, you know how you have to go and give your advisor your schedule for the next year. So a spring quarter, I go in to meet with her. I have my schedule filled out. I hand it to her. She looks up at me and she says, what are we doing with this degree? And I said, well, I want to go be Larry Speaks. I want to go work for a congressperson on the Hill, be a a press secretary. And she looked at me and she said, huh, well, if you're going to go to Washington, you need to be a lawyer. I said, why? <laughs> good good question. And she said, because everybody in Washington is a lawyer. It's three more years of your life. You'll be 25 years old. You'll have the world by a string. You need to go to law school. And it sounded so odd to me. And when I got home that summer for break, I mentioned to my grandmother, I'm like, this, this professor wants me to go to law school. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I'd be 25. Who spends seven years in college? But it was really Carol. I mean, Sandra is the one who planted that seed. And I have, I have given her, I mean, she's just been a wonderful transformational figure in my life. I told her, I said, you literally changed the trajectory in my life. She was at my wedding. Um, She sent me a note when she retired. I mean, she was along my path time. I don't, there were just these people that came in at pivotal points and 
pushed me in the direction I needed to go, just like you. Well, Sandra was was uh, an inspiration to a lot of people. She had a lot of firsts in mm-hmm. in her life, uh, being an African American woman columnist uh, mm-hmm. at times where that was not uh, not uh, accepted or certainly wasn't the norm mm-hmm. uh, back then. And then she's carved her own path. Uh, Yes. Uh, through, throughout. So when you went to law school, I hated it. <laughs> I just have to admit, I hated it. <laughs> so I spent all my time working at the state Democratic Party when, <laughs> when I was in law school. So so uh, I, I can't speak too much about law school, but, but did did you find it an alien world? I did. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I walked in being blue collar, and 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 I looked around, and there were guys with uh, you know numbers behind their name mm-hmm. and carrying attaché cases, mm-hmm. and I had a backpack, and you know, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know exactly. I, I never felt comfortable there. I I got comfortable when I first arrived. I was not when I first arrived. I was terrified. I mean, I really wasn't sure that I can compete. So I'm at Ohio State. There's 225 of us in our first-year class, only 11 African-American, about 40% women. And the first day at the convocation, Dean Meeks says, look to your left, look to your right. One of you will not be here at the end of the year. And I was convinced it was me. And so... I remember my first year was a blur because all I did was study. I mean, I was so terrified that I I was not up to the task. And then the more I got into it, the more relaxed I became. And I got smart and started looking at the smart people in class. And one of them said, hey, you want to form a study group? Um, There you go. (laughs) Good move. So I I can't say that – I wouldn't say I enjoyed law school, but I didn't hate it. I I saw it as a means to an end. I knew if I did well there that I would be able to have a good job. And for me, it was very much about my career, how I was going to support myself. Could I be successful? So I got comfortable with it. I uh, worked full time because I was trying to work my way through and not come out with mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, debt. So I got to see a lot of interesting politics during oh, I the, bet you did. The, the John Gilligan <laughs> governor years when <laughs> when I was in law school, and uh, uh, it, it it was quite interesting. But I loved the practice of law. I loved the law. Mm-hmm. I I just didn't like the the the, the doctrinal l- theoretical. Yeah, yes, that, yeah. That 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 approach. Law schools, fortunately, have gotten better where they're offering more clinics, at least Ohio State is. I mean, when we were in it, it was all doctrinal and yeah. abstract theory. Now they give kids a lot more opportunity to do practical skills building. They even have a contracts and negotiation seminar. Boy, that'd be nice, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? Right. <laughs> like you could actually know what you're doing when you get out of law school. I remember. It, when you got out, what did you do right away? So while I was in law school, I worked for the prosecutor's office, Franklin right. County, um, the city prosecutor's office. And then when I got out, I immediately went to work for Tony Celebrezzi at the attorney general's office. So I was what I call a quasi-prosecutor. I represented the state medical board and the state pharmacy board. So I literally tried to revoke licenses of pharmacists or physicians who had violated the professional terms of their license. Usually it was trading drugs for sex or something like that. Now, when you went to the the attorney general's office, did you know 
you were going to be political or or did you go there just to be a lawyer? I went there because I wanted to be a trial lawyer. So when I went to work in the prosecutor's office, I fell in love with the courtroom. So I wanted to try cases. What I knew for certain is I didn't I wouldn't be happy in a law firm. I was not the type that could just sit in a library and do research. I needed people. I needed to be in the courtroom. And while the prosecutor's office would offer me a job when they had an opening, what the attorney general's office said, if you want to come with us, this was in January of my third year of law school, they made me an offer nice. and they told me, <laughs> right, they told me I could I could try cases. And so that's why I went. I wasn't thinking long term about public service. I just wanted to be in the courtroom. I actually saw my career that I was going to be this kick. I was going to use a cuss word, but I was going to be this bad uh, trial you, lawyer. You, you that was say, <laughs> you could be a kick-ass lawyer, That's right? right? <laughs> trial lawyer. That's what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to get married. wasn't going to have kids. I was just going to make my living as a trial lawyer. You know, it, it, I loved the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with the courtroom the first time mm-hmm. I, I, I walked in it. And and that's one of the reasons I ran for judge. I couldn't get enough mm-hmm. in in private practice. That's right. Uh, you're you're there sporadically, mm-hmm. and, and boy, as a judge, you're you're there. You're in the fire every day. Oh, oh, yeah, every day. So so after the AG's office, what did you do? So I was only at the AG's office for two years, and then I was offered an opportunity to go in house with the Ohio Department of Corrections. Oh yeah. Uh, under Governor Celeste, the department. They were trying to get the department to be more professionalized. We were under four federal consent decrees. It was a billion-dollar agency. They were worried about having their first execution in 10 years after the U.S. Supreme oh, Court had outlawed right. them. And they were 150 percent over capacity. So I went in as chief legal counsel. I was 27. I had wow. four lawyers that worked with me. I was overseeing 900 cases. And I wow. did that for a couple of years and did the same thing for the juvenile side of the corrections department. Um, And that's really where I got the bug. I mean, I've walked through all the prisons in Ohio then, and seeing kids locked up just didn't feel right to me. I mean, you know, you see adults, they make their own choices, but I saw boys 15, 16, 17 years old. That, sh- that should not be. And and I, the only way I can describe it is, it's like that proverb in the Bible, instead of throwing kids in, pulling kids out of the water, I decided to go upstream and keep them from being thrown in. And so I just thought that if I could be on the bench, I could help these kids before they ended up spending a decade or so of their life in prison. And that's when I decided I was going to run. And running in Franklin County, at that time, oh, it was hard. It was very Republican. I was a Democrat. I was 32 years old. Very Republican and very white. And very white. I was the first African-American woman to get elected to the Common Police Court. And only the second African-American in history That's to, right. be, to be elected. And this was what year? 1992. Isn't yeah. that remarkable? It is remarkable when you think back, right? It's remarkable. So, yeah. so talk to me about the about race and and race in your race. Did, did you confront I've, – I've talked to Judge Gail Byers mm-hmm. in, in South Euclid. Oh, yeah, uh, I know her. Yeah. I've, I've talked to Nina Turner mm-hmm. about their perceptions of race. Mm-hmm. Did you feel it? Did, was it a factor? You know, it's, it's interesting. I think part of it has to do with how I approach life. I didn't feel it except in this instance. I had my media advisor advise me not to put my photo on my literature. And I said, 
No, I'm going to put my photo on. If I'm going to win, I'm going to win being who I am. But part of my personality is I don't allow other people to define me. So while I thought race would be an issue, I didn't give in to that. So I went to the Hilliard Farm Bureau and the Obet Zucchini Festival and the Reynoldsburg Tomato Festival. Wherever there were people, I went and I shook hands. I introduced myself and I just outworked my opponent. I said, I have what it takes to be a good judge in this county. And I'm I'm sure there may have been people that didn't support me because of my race, but I never felt it overtly, and I never allowed myself to dwell on it. It's funny. Judicial races, for anybody who hasn't ever experienced them, are really bizarre. They are. Can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you've, you've run in all kinds of races, mm-hmm. but judicial races are the most bizarre because basically you got to say, look at me. Yes, I, right. I, I'm judicial <laughs> and, and I'll be fair. But right? I won't tell you how. <laughs> <laughs> that's but right. it, that, that's, that's the way it goes. Right. And, and uh, to, so to get elected was, was a major accomplishment. It was. I, I am enormously grateful. And to be honest, I mean, I ran in the year of Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Ross Perot. So I had coattails. Wow. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't just me. It was the right time. And in 1992, I got the Columbus Dispatch endorsement against a sitting judge. That was unheard of at the time. I mean, I will never forget my partner calling me and and she said, get out of bed. You got the dispatch endorsement. I mean, nobody expected that. And when we were calibrating the race, we always figured the dispatch endorsement was worth about four percentage points. And we had to think about what we didn't expect to get it. So we figured we had to work hard to overcome that. And when we got it, we were so amazed. And I can remember going door to door in Upper Arlington the Saturday after that endorsement came out. And I, this man answered the door and I introduced myself. I had a piece of my literature and he said, honey, I already voted for you. He said, I figured if the dispatch endorsed a black woman, you must have your shit together. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. (laughs) And and you went, thank you. Thank you, (laughs) Thank you very much. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so it, it was, there were a lot of, you know, sometimes it's about timing and luck. Yeah. And so we worked hard, but we had the wind at our back too. You know, when you take the bench, especially a trial bench, juvenile mm-hmm. court bench, uh, anything where you're dealing with a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, it, there are a lot of burdens mm-hmm. that, that come with that. And, mm-hmm. and would you agree that you have to have a dedication to service Yes. or you'd go absolutely crazy? Yes, you have to have a dedication to service and you have to be able to do self-care because when you're on a trial court bench like that, you hear some of the most awful things. Horrendous. You, you can't imagine man's inhumanity to man, right? right? And so you have to be able to give yourself the ability to step away. And Tom, from the time I took the bench my first day, I promised myself I would never be one of those judges just phoning it in. Right. And so when I left in the middle of my second term, I, my, my second term, I ran unopposed. And three years into that second term, I just couldn't do it anymore. I knew when I got to the point where I would be watching the news on a, a Sunday night and I'd think, oh, my God, they're going to be in my courtroom tomorrow. Or I'd get this pit in my stomach and I'd be like, 
I, I just can't do it. When I got to the point where I couldn't leave it at the court, where I would get home and I couldn't erase what I'd seen that day, I knew I had to go because I wasn't going to be the kind of mother and wife and person I wanted to be. And so that's when I started planning my exit. I just, you've got to not let it wash over you where you lose yourself. And I think sometimes judges... They just don't know when to say when. You never want to be one of those people that can't look at every person. Even if you've heard the story a hundred times before, you've got to be able to look at each defendant and see their story. Find some humanity in them before you can decide what is a just and proper verdict. And if you don't do that, I see judges do one thing or the other. They either are involved, as you just Mm -hmm. described, or they get to a point where, oh, whatever. Right. And I'd seen, I'd <laughs> yeah. never, yes. They're just, and, they don't and, even look up at the defendant. They're just like, okay, what is this case? They've yeah. got the sentence in their mind. They it's, don't want to hear from It's yeah. become a formula. That's right. which, which I know is alien to your approach mm-hmm. and was, was alien to, to my approach. But at the same time, I, I, I reached a point, I went in thinking every human being had some redeeming value. Yes. But by the time I had done this for about seven or eight years, mm-hmm. I, I was going, you know, I'm not so sure mm-hmm. that this person in front of me who mm-hmm. has done these heinous things and has no remorse whatsoever, I'm not sure they have human value. And that's, that's right. when I started thinking, like you, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe somebody else should do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are people that need to be in prison. I mean, for a safe society, there are people that need to be in prison. But even those people deserve to have the right to present their case and give their explanation and have a jurist with an open mind in terms of what their punishment is going to be. I think if we lose that, we lose the fundamental basis of what it means to have an open court system where everybody is judged on their own merit. So what did you do right after that? So when I decided um, that I needed to transition, I started having quiet conversations with people. And one of those conversations happened to be with a friend of mine who was on the Children's Hospital Board. And she said, you know, we've been thinking about creating this child abuse center. Would you consider doing that? It's a perfect fit for your skill sets. And she set up a meeting between me and the CEO of the hospital, and we met a couple of times and literally within six weeks decided that I would resign from the bench. I would become one of the presidents at the hospital, so that made their fourth president, and that we would build a one-stop center for children who were sexually abused and seriously physically abused. And I have to tell you, Tom, I thought being a judge would be the best work of my life. This center it changed it changed the paradigm for kids in Franklin County because before we had the center, if you were a child who was sexually assaulted, you could wait for hours in an emergency room. And our average age of child who was sexually assaulted was seven or eight years old. So imagine you've had the most horrific thing happen to you. You're in an emergency room waiting on a police detective, a children's services worker, and there's screaming and there's gunshots and there's chaos, and you've had your own trauma. We created this 42,000-square-foot facility where we house our child abuse physicians, the Special Victims Unit of the Columbus Police Department, the Children's Services Sexual Abuse Investigation uh, wow. Unit, 
um, domestic violence counselors. So when a child goes through that, they go to one place. And everybody they need to see is in that one place. We have counseling for the child, counseling for the family. It, it is it, it is wonderful. And we did it because we partnered with the prosecutor, children's services, the police chief. Everybody came on board and agreed to do this. And, and you – I mean this in the proper way, not in the improper way, used your position as a former juvenile judge Mm -hmm. to bring knowledge Mm -hmm. and awareness to to that issue and also some knowledge of who the players were that might – be supportive of your cause. Is, 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 yes. Is that a correct characterization? I think so. I think that um, my experience along with the hospital's reputation allowed us to raise money. We raised $10 million to build that building in two years. And, wow. And it's still there. Whenever I drive past the hospital, I see that building. And it's just an enormous source of pride for me because, again, it was part of it was being part of the solution, going all the way back to that girl who's walking through the prisons. So now what we know is that 60 or 70 percent of people in prison have a record of child abuse in their background. So if we can take kids who have been through the most horrific thing and say to them, there's nothing wrong with you. A bad thing happened to you, but we can heal you and move forward. It's no different than being in a car accident or or having a serious illness. It's horrible what happened. But let's teach you how to be a survivor and not a victim. And and. Both genders. Yes, both uh, genders. Uh, uh, yes, which both have been genders. forgotten for a while, but yes. now is coming to the fore. Thank God, because boys were so slow to report. They just, and now that we're finally said, there's no stigma. You didn't choose this. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University is having an impact today while providing innovative education for tomorrow's leaders. The master's program in public administration and environmental studies leads students to greatness in nonprofit, environmental, public sector, and government settings. Learn to lead at the Voinovich School. We're now accepting applications. Information is available at ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. After that, you've got the political bug again. Not in so... Not intentionally. I'm I'm minding my own business. I'd been at the hospital for eight years. On a lot of boards. On a lot of boards, yeah. I was I had a great job. And out of the blue, the phone rings in January asking me if I would meet with Governor Strickland. And I was like, mm. why? I mean I know Ted. Why does is there something he needs? <laughs> of course I'll meet with him, right? Yeah, and so it was the most unexpected thing in the world. I was like, you want me to run as your loop? I, I, I was not prepared for that. But, you know, I'm always open for a challenge, right? And literally, this is what I thought. Okay, I've been here eight years. The center can survive me, right? It's doing well. You've reached that point where I, mm-hmm. you put in everything in place. And it's moving. Yep. I'm gonna be fi- I was going to be 50 that year, and I thought, huh, 
lot of people run marathons. I'm not doing that. I'll run for lieutenant governor. And I, I thought it would be an amazing experience, and it was. And I believed in Ted. And I thought, okay, if I can help, wh- who? how many people get the chance to do this? I mean, it was one of those once-in-a-lifetime experiences. I mean, I was with the president 13 times. Um, I got to fly on Air Force One. I mean, just there are so many memories of that year of my life Um, and just the ability to get around this state and to meet people and to give them a message of how I think we can make it better for their kids. I mean, going back to what I said earlier, I really I don't hear anybody talking about poverty anymore. And the whole reason my life, all of this has been successful is because I was a kid that was able to climb out of poverty. There were safety nets there for me. There were there were opportunities for me that I just worry now, do they exist for kids who are trapped in poverty like I was? Yeah. Can they get out in yeah. in, in, in the same way? And you look at education as, as the – It's the game changer. Is the vehicle to – to do that. And I'm not sure, given some of our educational opportunities. I mean, if you think about it, there is, this is the full return on investment. I came to Ohio University as a financial aid and work study student. Changing the trajectory of my life, one generation, I have been able to not only educate myself, but to actually pay to educate my three children. The power of one investment. So when they say when you change the life of a woman, you change the life of generations, that's true. I have three kids I've now put through college Times because three. of OU. Yeah. And, and they, they will have the skills to be able to put their children that's right. uh, through, through college as well. That's right. You know, traveling around the state, and, and I haven't as a candidate, but I certainly have traveled around the state campaigning for people. It it can become a drain. It's exhausting. You know, it, it's a big it's, state. It's every, <laughs> it's every little bean dinner and every little crossroads. And, yes. and but but at the same time, uh, it's exhilarating, isn't mm-hmm. it? It is. I have never known tiredness as much as when I was on the campaign. I mean, you, there's a level of exhaustion. I can't imagine how anybody runs for president because literally you are worn out. But there is also, there is an exhilaration from you meet people. And I can't, the energy you get from people who invest their hopes and dreams on you, who are so excited yeah. about you and the potential of your leadership and what they want. And and you find that most people are good. Most people, they just want to know that they can have a good job and raise their family and live in a safe community. I mean, if we could get more people to just talk to each other instead of about each other, I mean, it is, it's a wonderful experience to meet the people of this state. It is, Ted used to say, if you took Ohio and shrink-wrapped it, you'd have America. We have seven distinct geographies in Ohio, from urban to rural, Democrat to Republican, wealthy to poor, Appalachia to urban. It is really an incredibly diverse state. I did a program not too long ago, and uh, there's a study at the Women's Center in in Rutgers that, that says at this point there are only two African-American women holding statewide office in the United States. What? One, one is a Democrat in, in Connecticut and the other one is a Republican in Kentucky. 
there are so few holding statewide office. There are a lot in in um, local. Well, districts. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the arguments that one of the scholars was telling me is that you know people live in districts. They reflect the the, the personality and the demographics of that mm-hmm. of that district. Mm-hmm. But when you enlarge it to a state, mm-hmm. it changes the the dynamic. Did, yeah. Did you feel anything like that? I can't say I felt. Um when I was running for the Supreme Court, I felt it had more to do with um, Democrat versus Republican than black versus white. Okay. Um, so when I was on the campaign with Ted, campaigns, if you're not careful, they try to create almost a caricature of who you are. And so where I think we miss the mark is not talking to all communities, right? We write off certain communities and say, oh, you're like when I was running for judges, I said, oh, you shouldn't go there. But I found that when I went to places where there weren't a lot of African-American people, I still got votes there. I think people just want to know that you are sincere. They want to know where you stand on the issues. But we as parties, whether Republican or Democrat, have got to stop creating this narrative that if you're a Democrat, you're one kind of way. And if you're a Republican, you're another kind of way. And so when it comes to running statewide, it's a resource issue. And often as an African-American candidate, you don't have the same ready access to resources. Um, And so it makes it harder for you to run a full statewide campaign. Media is incredibly expensive. Um, even And even when I ran for the Supreme Court, I didn't have enough money to run ads in every media market. Well, and in Ohio, you have so many oh, centers. Yes. You have the Northwest with Toledo, the mm-hmm. Southwest with Dayton and Cincinnati, yes. Central with Columbus, and then all of the Eastern, Akron, mm-hmm. Canton, Youngstown, yep. Cleveland. So you have – and those markets – by and large, except for maybe Dayton, Cincinnati, don't overlap a lot. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they are. When I was talking to my media people and they were telling me the cost, it was unbelievable. But I do think that one is if we can get more diverse women into the local offices and then the parties, though, need to embrace them and support them in seeking higher office. Unfortunately, when you look at most state parties, they're still very male and very white when you look at the leadership. That may explain why you're not seeing more women and more women of color moving into the statewide ticket. You ran statewide twice, Mm -hmm. once as lieutenant governor, Mm -hmm. and then uh, you were blessed to be appointed to the Supreme Court of Ohio, Mm -hmm. but only for a partial term and then had to run on your own. Can you compare and contrast the running for lieutenant governor and running – for the Supreme Court, they they seem alien from one another. They are, and they are. I mean, when you're running for lieutenant governor, you have a whole team of people. You have press secretaries. You have polling. You have media advisors. You have speech writers. When you're running for the Supreme Court, it's very lonely. <laughs> you're working all day on the court, driving yourself. And that's right. <laughs> 
And you're driving around to these dinners you describe. You're doing editorial board interviews. You are doing endorsement interviews. But the reality is, to your point, you can't say how you'd rule on anything. Um, you can talk about why you want to be a justice. Um, you can talk about your background. But Paul Pfeiffer once said, and it was famously quoted on the Wall Street, uh, the front page of the New York Times. He said, I never felt more like a hooker at a bus stop until, <laughs> <laughs> until I ran for the Supreme Court. <laughs> he I has mean, a way with words. Right. <laughs> the reality is, I think what most people don't understand, they see the Supreme Court as just another judicial race. But let's not kid ourselves. The Supreme Court has a lot of, of interest groups who endorse ca- candidates, whether it's the Banking Association, the Insurance Association, the Medical Association, real the Real Estate, the Grocers. I mean, you have all of these people who aren't lawyers but who are interested in how the court rules making endorsements. And so in order – and judges are last on the ticket. So unlike right. being lieutenant governor with the governor, you're at the top of the ticket. When we were running in 12 with Obama and share it on the ballot and all the local judges, we were at the very bottom. Like in Cleveland, I think we were on the third page. Wow. So most wow. people get exhausted before they yeah. even get to you. Now, another first for you, you were the first African-American woman. Mm-hmm. Were you the first African-American? No, no that was Judge Af- Duncan. Third. Se- third. Uh-huh. But first African-American woman. And the first the person of color in 37 years. This is, this is the thing that I, I think people if, – if you talk to most people, they would say they want their courts to be reflective of their state. And I was the first person of color in 37 years, and now there is no person of color on the court. And haven't been since you, correct? Yeah, I think we need to think about justice should not be about Republican or Democrat. It should really be seven honest, impartial jurists applying the law to the best of their ability that reflect the entire community, not just one segment of the community. Right now, there's six Republicans and one Democrat, um, and there's three women and four men. Being the first woman of color Mm -hmm. on the court, that had to carry with it some responsibility, Mm -hmm. certainly some historical weight. Mm How did you feel with that? What did you do with that? Mm-hmm. Was that something that was just a little voice in your head or could you put it aside? How, how did that impact you? You know, I always um, – it impacted me in this way. I always wanted to be known for however long my time on the court was as a great jurist. I didn't want people to say I was a Democrat jurist. I was the black jurist. I wanted them to say I was a great jurist. And so when I decided cases, I decided them based on the law. And I can remember once meeting with a union when I was campaigning. And the head of the union said to me, well, I'm just not happy with you. And I said, why? And he gave reference to a case that I had decided, and he thought that I, had, I should have voted the other way. And I said, well, when I took an oath, I took an oath to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Ohio, not to the Democratic Party. So if you don't like the way that I rule, then you need to change the law. 
I make decisions based on what the law said. And if you think it was a Republican decision, it's because Republicans have been writing the laws in this state for the last 30 years. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so, that, that's right. And, and those laws reflect that. That's right. And so I... I never apologize for doing what I think is right. And I said, even to when I was campaigning and speaking at dinners of Democrats, I said, at the end of the day, when I look in the mirror, I want to make sure I have my integrity and I've decided the law based on what the law calls for. And if you can't vote for me on those terms, I respect that. We've been talking about your your personal career and and – now you're in corporate law. I am. Is, Who knew which, that would happen, right? <laughs> which I can't hardly say. That seems a little alien to me, but but enjoying it. I, I am enjoying it. And and I guess for this reason, like I never saw myself in a corporate law firm, but our managing partner who hired me, he he is very wise. And so he's given me not only 50% of my role is practicing law and 50% of it is administrative. And so he's using my leadership skills in a way to help the firm. We're our global firm. We have 44 right. offices around the world. And so one of the things I'm heavily involved in is recruiting and working with our young associates. And so in many ways, I feel enormously grateful, not only for the legal work, which is at the highest intellectual level, but that I get to be a part of helping young lawyers, brand new lawyers, figure this whole legal thing out, help them shape their career. It is, it's wonderful. And they keep me young because honestly, Tom, the lawyers I work with weren't even born when I graduated (laughs) from law school. And so so it's humbling and inspiring. (laughs) Well, it, it seems like it's another way for you to formulate something like you did when you did the child abuse. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's starting from the ground up and building something yes. that hasn't already have an institutional memory. You're starting from yes. the ground up. Yes. Uh, Judge, one last thing. And, and we have, I think, still, and, and I think you would agree with me perhaps, it, we still have racial issues yes. in this country. Yes. And we've seen example after example where we're not comfortable talking about them mm-hmm. even, uh, mm-hmm. let alone resolving them. Mm-hmm. We've got people now who want to go back to the 1950s, pre-civil yes. rights. We've got other people who certainly uh, want to be progressive mm-hmm. in, in what we're doing. You've been involved in this all your all your professional life. Well, all your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we do? Yeah, um, yeah. I what I what I think we have to do is we have to turn the the social media off and start talking to people who are different from us. I have never met somebody that I can't find some some basis to have a conversation with. You know, I work with colleagues in the law firm who are far more conservative than I am, but I listen to them. I hear what their positions are, and I can debate them on those positions. Even if we never get to a point of understanding, we get to the point where we can have a respect that we both have honestly held beliefs. There's and a civil respect. There's a civil – that's it. It's, it's the thing where when I was growing up 
in in Ohio. We had Stan Aronoff and Vern Reif, remember? Absolutely. And they they could argue all day long, but they always met for a drink afterwards. That's right. And they work things out. We've got to get back to a point where you and I can disagree, but just because we disagree doesn't make one of us deplorable, right? I cannot agree with you and still think that you're a good human being. And that seems – that that other seems to permeate certainly Washington. It and, does. And it seems to be seeping down in, into our states and our local governments. When I'm afraid it's seeping into our, our colleges and institutions, earlier today when I was talking to some students, I said – We've got to get away from this safe space talk. We've got to get away from picketing people whose views are different from us from appearing on campus. I think colleges and universities have to be the place where different ideas come and are debated and people contest their own beliefs. You know, I came here as a student thinking about some things very differently than the way I thought about them when I left. That's what college is for. And so if we're going to build students, build adults who can be critical thinkers, they've got to hear both points of views. And right now, what we've done, and I don't, I'm don't, i not speaking about Ohio University specifically, no, but my son's Campuses college, across right, the country. Is that we, we've created these spaces where you can go into the black student center and only see people like you who think like you. We can go into the women's center and only talk about issues that we care about with people who think like us. I think we got to all get back to what I used to do at Ohio University. We all came into Baker Center. We sat on the wall. We sometimes had rigorous debates about whatever the topic of the day was, but no fists were thrown. Nobody cussed anybody out. We just had these intellectual debates and we walked away mostly having learned something. And if nothing else, you grew. You grow as a person. And in, yeah, and until we can do that and, and stop doing, stop looking at our phones all the time and look at each other, I don't know how it changes. I worry that. Um, we're raising a generation of young people who aren't going to know how to engage in critical debate because we've treated them as if they're so precious they have to be in a safe place where they never hear a dissenting voice. I think that's very dangerous in a democracy. Democracy is a participatory sport, and as you said, it's a rough-and-tumble sport. And we have these silos now and these echo chambers yes. that we only talk to people that, that we agree with. We agree with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Certainly, that's that's not uh, a recipe for growth and, and certainly probably not a recipe for good democracy. That's right. Yeah. It's been a delight. Thank you so very much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks. Today, we've been talking with Yvette McGee-Brown, an attorney, a longtime judge, and a public leader who doesn't let other people define her path. Today's tip is that it doesn't matter where you start your career. However you begin the journey, you can move a long way if you look for opportunities to make a contribution, including through public service and even the political process. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act like a CEO.